Welcome, everybody. It's the podcast that's causing storms, um, namely because of our Mr. Controversial Aaron and possibly our new uh, acquaintance. And I say acquaintance, people out there, so don't stone us. No, um, welcome um, to Mel um, that's joined us as well. It's good to get that extra exposure via Twitter. Hi, Mel. And um, how are you going, Aaron? I'm, I'm doing okay. Okay, um, now I will have my little torment, and it comes from the controversial game on Friday night, just gone, and it might be oh, Christopher. <laughs> it might be um, related to Christopher Michael Scott, and it may be. Um, related to I think it's about the third or fourth time that he's decided as a coach to on the field have conversations with opposition players. Um, it's not like he's a once-off fella to do this. He's turned what he did on the football field into the way he coaches, which is fine. You know, you sometimes breeds success breeds success. But I really don't think it's a good look from the AFL down to um, what we – see is, you know, country football coaches, et cetera, like that. If that had happened in the country, a bit of yap like that, and they also see their mentors like Mr. Scott as, you know, heroes and mould their coaching and their styles on people like him, we could have had a situation, we could have a situation in the future of other coaches at that level thinking they can do stuff like that. And we may have all in blues and God knows what. So I, I don't think Mr. Scott on the heat of the moment sort of remembered where he was. And um, I just sort of thought I'd just point out, Mr. Scott, I think you need to start acting a bit more gentlemanly. Let's be honest, footballers don't have brains, so you probably should know better. Anyway, I was being nice. Sometimes I get quite emotional and I'm quite open to people on social media to bag me because I do notice I have a similar stance to a certain Fox football um, expert that a lot of people came regularly to play for North Melbourne, as in David King. So, yeah, feel free to jump on the bandwagon and stone me, people out there, and we'll keep crowding Storm. Any comments from either of my colleagues on that? I'm going to go first and say I'm glad you mentioned a storm to start this off because you've just made a storm in a teacup, I reckon. (laughs) I don't think that there's much into it at all. I actually didn't mind it. It adds a bit of of tension, a bit of drama to the game, and I I had no issues with it at all. If it was an isolated situation, I wouldn't, but he's a serial pest at it. Yeah, he is, but we also say we want characters in footy as well. So I don't mind this sort of stuff. You, you do remember he was nicknamed one of the Cray brothers when he played? Yeah, he's a coach now, though. Well, he's the only Cray brother coaching. He is, but I'm sure Mel's got something to say about that as well. Oh, look, I've, look I've, well, this is all I've heard about since Friday night. Um, it's It's been constant, from my opinion, and it's only going to ring as bias so you know I I won't say too much but I'm in Aaron's camp there's not much in this at all even Fagan said there's not much in this at all um if you're being spoken to to by a player who has incited drama um and sledging on the field to create a reaction then he's going to react he's going to say something back 
Um, and then when another four or five players come at you, then you're really drawn into the situation. I think it shows. I think it shows passion. I think it shows that he's sticking up for his men. Um, he's got their backs. He's part. Of, he's part of the 22, 23. He, you know, I I loved it. I loved it. I'd like to see more of it. And I have seen other coaches do a similar thing. And I think we will see other coaches doing it as well if they're accosted like that on the ground. You can't expect him to just do nothing. I think that that would appear weak. So I don't mind it. Um, as you know, look, it didn't go further than it was than it, it it was. So I, you know, I was happy with it, and I was proud actually. And from the players that we've heard from down at the Cattery, they're um, standing by their man. They're happy with it, and they're actually, you know, proud that they've got someone that's got their back um, in that manner. So I think we all move on from it now because it has been blown up. We're still talking about it's almost a week later. Um, I think we just move on and yeah, get on with round three. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Mel. Especially, my, especially from my perspective as a Carlton supporter, <clears throat> it's actually good. I'd love to have a coach that gives a shit. Well, because um, David Teague doesn't give much, and um, if he showed some sort of passion, as much as Chris Scott did there, that he's happy to go in and and bat for his side, I'd be more than happy to see that from well, Teague. My, my parting comments are: if the Perry use guys wish to condone misbehaviour. It's his workplace. There's a certain etiquette he should be working towards. And if I did that in my workplace, I'd be probably under disciplinary um, action. You so can't compare, yep. You can't compare those types of workplaces. This is, this is football. This is a football field. This is high emotion. This is high stakes, massive game. Um, you know, a lot of emotion caught up in the game. We know Chris Scott, even in the box, is the one of the most emotion charged coaches. He knowing him, he is so passionate. He's like a fan. Um, so look, he got some words sprayed at him. We all know what he was like as a player. That could have got physical as a player, but he's a coach now, and he just responded in words. I don't. I really, honestly, he kept walking. There wasn't much to it. Guthers and Joel came over to him, let's go into the huddle. They went and that was the end of it. And it turned out to be a formidable contest after that. Um, and, you know, yeah, I just I just think we put it to bed now and, and, um, and move on. Was he the Scott that was the gutless one that attacked Rewild when he, or was it Brad that attacked Rewild? When he did his um, collarbone, was it, oh, was it Chris know. or Brad? I, don't know. I could never tell him apart. Was him one of them and Mel sure Michael? It was Chris, but... Well, so there we go. That's enough. That's that's his character there, and that done and dusted. And Let's move on. See, <laughs> so good to see. Not his character. That's not his character at all, and I won't have that. <laughs> well, the evidence is hard. Ask Nick Rewald. Anyway, let's move let's, on. Let's move on. Um, now the AFL have this stance happening, guys, around protecting the head. And I've written E.G. Dangerfield because, I'm sorry, Mel, but there's a little bit about Geelong in the um, first um, few uh, um, segments we're talking about. I knew about there was when I saw the yeah. run <laughs> Now, I, yet again, um, have an opinion on this, but um, I won't sort of mention it because I don't want to make anyone cry. 
Um, so we might go off Woody. What's your stance on this protecting the head? Was the danger field, even though we know it's happened a couple of weeks ago now that we're recording, was it the right decision? And if you look at that too, the GWS game, there was a similar sort of thing took place, not knowing near the carnage yes. of the Dangerfield one. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Well, you said it's nowhere near the carnage of the Dangerfield one, but I actually I think it was um, Reed, wasn't it? Yeah, Reed was um, got and hit five. <clears throat> I I actually think um, the Reed one was worse than Dangerfield because they both gone to bump. They both elected to bump. Dangerfield's actually made the clean <coughs> bump and hit the head now. I think under the current rules the AFL have, it says if you elect to bump, then you're liable for any any head injuries from there. So under the rules, three weeks was fair. I think even though I don't agree with the rule, it's just a head clash for me, and that's part of footy sometimes. Um, but with the Reed one, he's actually hit the shoulder to head. So the bump wasn't clean as Dangerfield's actual bump was. <clears throat> so Dangerfield one was just a head clash, whereas Reed actually hit him high. So I thought that if Dangerfield got three, then Reed was probably needed to be looking at four. But Reed, though, was stationary, which is a little bit different again. Oh, it's, and the thing is, too... <clears throat> he hasn't got the momentum. You're right. Um, again, which makes a... Uh, Strengthens my point too because Dangerfield was actually in the contest, whereas Reed was behind the ball a little bit. It was around the ball up. It was around the ball, but it wasn't at the contest like Dangerfield's was. But also, though, too, Fife could have been running in to give him a nudge to try and get into the contest too. Yep, so that's there's, right. there's so an element of that as well. There's an element of that, but there's also an element <clears throat> that Fife needs better awareness around the ball too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Your thoughts, Mel? Look, put simply, the rules, whether we like them or not, and I'm pretty sure a lot of us don't, is that if you elect to bump and there's a head injury as a result, then you're gonna you're looking at a suspension. So we always knew Danger Field was gonna get a suspension. Um, but my concern my concern with the, with this ruling is this. I fear for the future of the bump in the game because coaches are now telling players don't bump, tackle, do anything but bump. Players are pulling up, not wanting to bump. They don't, they don't want to get in trouble. So it's almost like um, we're slowly seeing the eradication of the bump, which I think is incredibly sad because it's such a great part of our game. Um, but I agree with Aaron. Dangers dangers um contact was shoulder to shoulder take away the head clash and it was a fair bump and would all be saying play on and no one would be talking about it unfortunately there was a head clash no one likes to see it could have just as easily been danger not kelly could have been both of them that's we've seen head clashes since the beginning of time they're not great um so i think as i said from the letter of the law he had to get in trouble Three weeks, a little bit steep for mine, but, you know, couldn't contest it. Uh, as opposed to the Reed hit, that looked worse because it was off the ball and it was shoulder to chin, so shoulder to, to the head, essentially. So it did, for mine, it did look worse. I didn't think he should get more weeks. I thought he should have got the same amount. The fact that he got two um, you know, I think that was a, a little bit low, only considering the Dangerfield incident. Um, but 
But look, at least he got something. Uh, it didn't. It didn't look good. We don't like. No one likes to see it. Concussion is a massive thing. We don't know how it's going to affect players in the future. We don't know how it's affecting players at the moment. So we do need to be careful with it. I'm not disputing that for one second, but I am very concerned about the future of the bump and these sort of tribunal or MRO decisions um, worry me. Mm. Yeah, like you said, we do need to be careful, um, obviously, and take take head injuries and concussions seriously. But at the same time, we need to be realistic. Um, it's going to be part of the game. It doesn't matter what rules you put in place. Given mm. the nature of the game, it's 360-degree game. There's going to be head mm-hmm. clashes and there's going to be concussions. So there's a few factors. Just because, be, just because be someone accident. gets concussed doesn't mean we need to suspend someone every single time. Exactly. And there'll be there'll be um, concussions <clears throat> from going up for a mark and hitting the ground hard or, you know, a, a clash of heads in a contest with the ball. No one's at fault. You know, Dangerfield, you know, Dangerfield didn't intentionally mean to hurt Kelly, that's his friend. They used to live together. Of course, there was no intent in that. It was just so unfortunate. But he chose to bump, and the rule is if you choose to bump and there is a resulting um, head injury, you get suspended. So that's the way it is. My concern, another concern with the head clashes, and I'd like to know your thoughts, is this year we've implemented a 12-day rule. So if there, if a player comes off, concussed and stays off the ground then he can't he's out of the game for 12 days essentially that could be two matches now my thoughts on that is of course from a medical perspective we've got to do everything we can to protect the head and the health of the players for the, especially for their future but my concern on that is that everybody's different we're all individuals we all recover from all sorts of things differently So some people recover from concussion in one to two days. Some do take 12 days. So for a player to have to maybe miss two games of football but be completely cleared by a doctor and just sitting up in the stands, that concerns me as well. What are your thoughts on that? Um, Look, I err on the um, the caution side of things because i seen an interview quite some time ago of David Glascott, the Carlton, I think, wingman back in the day, mm-hmm. and he, yes. through concussion, they've linked that he has very severe depression that is connected to his concussion. Now, he's not alone. There's, yeah. been, other, there's been other ex-footballers from that sort of era where, you know, Absolutely. there was a lot more thuggery around. <clears throat> and I think because it's become fully professional over time, and it is yet yet again a workplace. I agree that you know it's different to a normal workplace, but it's still a workplace. So the AFL owe a duty of care to the players, and if they're projecting the damage that concussion could potentially do down the track on some of the cases they already know about, like the Glasscots and those sort of guys, there's gonna potentially be, I believe, down the track a big, huge class action. I wasn't protected. They're, they're potentially opening themselves up to something big that you just can't predict. It's just. And I agree. <coughs> I agree, Tim. And I think that's why the rule has come in more yeah. to protect maybe the AFL <coughs> in the future from, you know, any legal ramifications rather than maybe the care of the player. And I don't, I just don't like the overriding of a doctor. He's a professional, he's the expert. 
if he says a player's right to go, that's something that you've got to you've you've got to take his word on because he he is a doctor. He's taken an oath, and some players, as I said, recover from concussion. You know, in one and a half days, others may take seven days. So it just concerns me that come a preliminary final, someone might you know, knock out a player or something like that and they'll miss the grand final or even a semi-final, they'll miss a prelim and a grand final. I mean, it's it does seem a little bit excessive for mine, but I don't want to make it sound like I don't care about yeah. concussion. And I mean, we've seen I, with I guess the other thing and, and yeah. with Tuck. You know, it is very serious. Yeah. Um. I just, I just thought I'd bring up the question. Oh yeah, and that's a fair question. And look, the, the, my parting note on it would be, is I want a playing, playing sort of situation for players where they can actually be a parent to their children when they get away from football, not be like the David Glascott, where he's apparently at times pretty much you can't communicate to him. He's just vague. He's vague. He's yeah, it's just yeah, it's just quite sad. As with most things to do, and like we'll use the danger field bump as an example. As long as they're consistent, let's just take it at that. If they're and consistent talking. and they apply it all the time, but let, let's see what happens if Dustin Martin gets knocked out in a prelim final this year. Let's see yeah. if they apply the. And here's one for you. Talking about consistent too, about reporting on head um, going for the head, Jimmy Webster. The player chose to go go in and bump him while he's trying to pick up the ball, and Jimmy got concussed. There was I'd never heard anything about a match review or anything like that because the player chose to go at him instead of try and outdo him for the ball. So it's there's I think inconsistencies. We know now that it's, I think we know now that it is the outcome overrides <laughs> the action. Um, Which is unfortunate as well. I think if you want to outline an action. Because if you look if you look at Williams mm. in round one, that was worse than a lot of them, you know. Mm. Um, but um, as you mentioned, Aaron, as long as it's consistent, then I think the football public are happy. However, I think we've just seen already round two, it's not consistent. We're back no. to well. And funny you're board talking board. about not consistent, Mel. Our next one is probably <laughs> our next comment point. <laughs> Comment point is around, um, I've posed it for us to discuss. Goal kicking really lose the game or is it umpiring standards affecting outcomes? Now, obviously, that's a trigger point from the non-decision on Friday night, for example, because there was a lot of yeah. Brisbane supporters <laughs> saying it cost us the game and whatnot like that. Woody's yeah. stance on it, um, well, they missed a, well, I'll be blunt, shitloads of goals that should have been goals were behind, <laughs> et cetera, like that. If, if you kick a million <clears> goals 14, <throat> so that's 25 short scoring shots, and the opposition has 21 scoring shots, and you lose the game, don't blame mm-hmm. an umpire. Um, Eric Hipwood ran it. into an open goal from 15 metres out and missed. Um, Barry missed a set shot from 30 metres out right in front. So rather than talking about, Umpiring mistakes. Let's talk about player mistakes. So I'm giving you two <coughs> examples there. Um, and also, we look at that the goal that Isaac Smith kicked with only a couple of minutes to go to put um, Geelong back in front. It wasn't an umpire that let him get five metres of space and run into an open goal either. That was his Brisbane opponent that failed to go with him. That's a bigger mistake than anything an umpire will do. Yeah. 
Look, I'll um, be quick on this one, obviously. Yeah, go, Mel. I don't want to appear biased or not. <laughs> um, the decision was wrong against Blix. I think we all know that. Um, you know, 30 seconds prior, there was a clear decision in Tom Stewart's favour that wasn't paid. You could go right through the tape from the first second to the last second. There are going to be dubious free kicks. And if you watch Friday night's game, and I've now watched it four times, um, <laughs> you can believe that, I know. Um, I've, every time I've watched it, there's been another dubious free kick. And I'm talking for both sides. It really wasn't well umpired. But, of course, because it comes down to that last pressure moment, um, then that's going to be the the focal point for the game and that's all anyone's going to talk about is is that non-free kick rather than other free kicks that happened during the game, the five free kicks that they got in goal, that in front of goal, that Hipwood missed, you know, one. Um, you mentioned Barry missed another. So, I mean, it, it, you know, it happens. For mine, bad kicking is bad football. That Every, is correct. You know, that's the adage we've grown up with. So... Mm. You've got to stick by that. I think being, let's talk about St Kilda, Tim, for a minute. You'll agree that back in, I think it was 18, 19, you guys weren't playing too bad at football, mm. but you were missing everything. Mm. And you got yourselves together, you, correct, you corrected <laughs> that, you straightened up, and you're all the more successful for it. Yeah. So it's it's definitely bad kicking, bad football, and um, just quickly on a personal note, I don't like to blame umpires because I just don't think it gets you anywhere other than absolute frustration. Uh, and also it can't change you can't change it. See, <laughs> so, I don't like the blaming the umpires thing either, but I just think why don't why don't you hold your players to the same standard you hold the umpires? You expect the umpire to get every decision correct um, and execute their mm-hmm. skills, but how many times do you see a missed tackle? Uh, Fumbled handball, a drop chest mark, or these sorts of things, oh, all the time. and and oh, they the cost time. goals as well. So coaching errors, oh, player errors, they make more of a difference to an umpire anyway. And if we want to go back to the Blitzhards one, yes, it was the wrong decision, but there's only thirty mm-hmm. seconds on the clock. So let's be honest, it's about eight or nine meters out, and he's on a very tight angle. So I'm tipping it's very mm-hmm. likely that the sign would have gone before the kick was taken anyway. Um, and there's not too many blokes that are going to nail a set shot from there. So let's not put, let's not say that it cost them the game when a free kick... It cost some punters a draw, though. A, a free kick does not guarantee a goal. <laughs> it cost some punters a draw. Well, that's bad luck. But <laughs> as I said, a free kick doesn't guarantee a goal, and when you kick 11-14, it's on you. Yeah, well, funny, funny you say that. Sorry, Mel, Go. I was just going to say, it depends which end, end you're on, isn't it? You know, Geelong supporter, we're all jumping up and down, you know, exuberant. Brisbane supporter, head in hands, you, you know, you're upset. But how many times has it happened in the reverse? It just, yeah. this is footy and this is what happens. It's Footy is heartbreak, footy is ecstasy. You're, you're either one of the two. So, you know, umpiring decisions yeah, we hate them. Of course we do. And that was a bad decision. No one, no one's denying it. I think Blix did <laughs> initially. But, um, you know, no one's denying that it was a bad decision. But let's look at 
you know, every minute of the game because there were bad decisions from go to while in that game. And let's hope they're better this weekend because that was terrible umpiring. That's correct. So, yeah, a a game isn't determined on one single moment. The game goes for 120 minutes. So there's thousands of sequences of little events that happen throughout the game that all lead up to the final moment and the final siren. No one single moment is more influential than another. So a dropped mark in front of goal or a missed missed goal 15 metres out is just as mm. costly no matter when it happens in the game as a, a non-decision or an umpiring decision in the last minute. I mean, just look at look at the goal miss just before halftime by Geelong in the grand final. I mean, you know, had we got that goal, you know, things could have looked a lot differently for us in that second half. So well, let's just look at halftime of the Geelong and Brisbane game as well. So um, mm. Gary Rowan took a mark in the goal square and played on um, and the umpire correctly adjudicated that the sign had gone before he kicked it. So, yeah. a- again, that's, that's a mistake made by the player. So if Gary Rowan, he should have looked up at the clock and seen there's 29, 30 minutes gone, <coughs> you don't yeah, play on in the goal square, do you? <clears throat> No. You don't no, play you in the goal square at that point. You go back and take your kick because no one's going to miss it from there. Um, yeah. So if he makes the correct decision, um, Geelong are actually seven points up at that point and it's a non-issue. Yeah. Well, on a parting yeah. note, um, on that topic, <laughs> on a parting note, um, there was a game, St Kilda and Melbourne, and I made a social media comment about... Um, I went to that I- game, Tim. Oh, did you? Well, I thought it was a horrible game from both sides' perspective, even though <laughs> Melbourne won, because yet again, Melbourne were wasteful in front of goal. Weren't they? Correct? They sure were. Right? St Kilda were horrible at hitting yeah, targets yeah, during right. general play, and uh, there's one um, Melbourne supporter that's slightly connected to this podcast <laughs> that I've seen him on social media streaming himself like they won a grand final, and I'm thinking to myself, the lesser worst team on the night of a bad night of, by both teams won, if that makes sense. But anyway. So, so Melbourne kicked 12-19. <clears throat> Correct. Right? So you kicked 12-19 against um, a Richmond or a Port Adelaide and see how you go then. Yeah, exactly. And, look, the only thing is, though, let's not... Before we move on to the next topic, let's not be silly about it. Um, the umpiring standard is questionable at the moment, more than normal with consistency. And I sort of think they fell responsible a yeah. bit before their bloody rule changes all the time. Yeah, they it are. Comes but- to, it comes back to the MRO. They're consistent. The AFL themselves as adjudicators, they're creating rules 24 hours out from the season proper. I mean, you know, this is disastrous moving ahead for both players and umpires, mm. you know. so Kicking for goal is just as poor as umpiring at the moment. And, so let's let's put some responsibility back on the players because if you're relying on an umpiring decision in the last minute of a game to either win you the game or lose the game, you probably should be demanding more of your players. Yeah, 100%. I agree with and that. And now we have the VFL situation where they're instigating different rules than what are in the AFL. So, I mean, there's just going to be even more confusion. Yeah, the AFL are um, probably not the most credible organisation, really, are they? No. 
not when it comes to this, not when it comes to rule changes. These should these should be issues that are discussed between clubs and coaches and umpires way before. I'm talking October or September of the season before, leading into the next season. You can't do this sort of stuff. VFL, AFL, um, you know, hours out from the start of the round. It's it's phenomenal that that happened and it goes back about 20 years when they decided they needed a rules of the game committee now the rules of the game committee seem like they need to try and justify their positions yeah let's just leave the game as it is that's right and just see how it develops and that's exactly what don scott said on their podcast and just on top of that alistair clarkson needs to stop changing rules okay i've said my piece (laughs) yes oh i'm waiting for jeff to sack alistair anyway um, we'll move on to the next um, topic, which is are the bells tolling for Leon Cameron? They're 0-2. They're every chance of being 0-1 a lot more before they actually win a game. What's people's thoughts on? Uh, I know we flirted with him um, in our AFL special, but now we've got a little bit of evidence. What are people's thoughts? Well, I'm just looking at the fixture here. In the next couple of weeks, they've got Melbourne, Collingwood, Sydney, which is going to be a tough game on form anyway. And then they've got the Dogs. Um, that could be 0-6, I think. And then they've saying. got Adelaide in round seven. So so it could be 0-6 playing Going Adelaide. into Adelaide, they could be 0-6. And, and I wouldn't mind betting if they're 0-7 then Leon Cameron's out of a job. Oh, okay. A mid-season, a mid-season second. Who else is at the club that would take over from him in, as an interim? I actually don't know who their assistants are, but Lenny Hayes was there. Um, yeah, he um, yeah, he's, <clears throat> he's definitely under the pump now. Uh, look, for mine, um, he has to be under the microscope, and quite simply, um, you know, wins wins and losses is what it comes down to, whether whether <coughs> coaches like it or not. Um, but more for mine, on a personal um, opinion, with the list he has, he has to do better. We understand that he's been, you know, his list has been pillaged over the years. It even was last season. Um, So you have some sympathy, a little bit of empathy for him there. Um, We also can't forget that he made the grand final in 19 with, you know, all odds against them, you know, the travel leading up to the finals, the travel in the finals. He was depleted um, with injuries. So to make that grand final, you know, um, was enormous. So, and that's only, look, that's only a couple of seasons ago. So from that perspective, we we could be being too harsh on Leon, but when you go through their list, I mean, I've been through their list quite, um, quite thoroughly and look, you just, there's ticks, ticks, ticks of of players you'd put on your wish list. I mean, they're, they're stacked with talent. So when you look at it from that perspective, you've got to say, Leon, you need to get more out of these players. Um, I don't know if you guys watched the Making the Mark documentary. I know a lot of um, my Twitter followers have and I have. Um, There were warning signs for me, for him, watching how he coached, watching how the players um, reacted and engaged with him. It, It seemed like there wasn't the buy-in that maybe you see 
um, when you're watching, you know, Fagan at, at address the lions, it, it, it just had a different feel. It's, he seemed a little smug for mine. Um, so, yeah, I, he definitely has to be under the microscope. And, and as, as says, you know, um, looking at their fixture moving forward, it's about wins and losses. And, and if he does get to round 11 and he's in a, you know, precarious position, I think they would look at it. However, money does come into this, especially in COVID times and whether they can afford to move on to someone else, who knows. Yep. And, look, I I think um, he won't see it this season. And I tend to agree. I watched, I caught a bit of, um, I think it's on the couch on Fox Footy. So I thought, yeah, that's what theirs one's called, yeah. And I tend to agree with something that um, Nick Rewald and Gary Lyon were saying about the list. A lot of their top 20 picks have moved on. They've got a new lot of top 20 picks, but they, they haven't got the games under them. So they're sort of saying, are they almost at the stage where they pull the trigger and rebuild? Rebuild, yeah. yeah. Develop those kids. And, and that's what I was talking about when I, <clears throat> when I was saying, look, they've been pillaged. So, they're, mm. you know, you, you've got to take that into account as well. And even last season, you know, they lost their, their best four at the Colombo medalist. So, and that come up in that yeah, discussion can, too. Yeah, so you can understand that, you know, he. I can understand the frustration of Leon that they they have drafted so well and then been pillaged. But at the same time, let's also not forget that they that when they have um, drafted, they haven't taken care so much of their salary cap by paying so much to their mids rather than their full, you know, their like star key position players. That's right. So and that come up in the discussion as well. Yeah. Yeah, so now they've got, I did it, okay, so now they've got a, they're they're stacked with mids, but where are their key positions? So, um, you know, they're robbing Peter to pay Paul a little bit, um, and I think it's a bit dicey. You can go one way or the other with this. You can blame this all on Cameron, and that would be okay, but you can also give him some excuses. I think, too, what you've got to look at, and you're on the money, because they mentioned about the mids getting paid the top dollar and they didn't have the money for the forwards. Now, okay. for example, Kelly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, for, for example, Kelly, right? Two two yeah. years ago, he was probably two, two and a half years ago, he's probably nearly the best midfielder in the competition, right? He's gone backwards. Yeah. Now, if you were to offload him, mm-hmm. is the club going to pay what he's getting paid at the moment of GWS on current last two seasons? I wouldn't have thought so. He's not worth it. So that makes it hard and, and too. And that's what happened to Cameron essentially too, even though he wanted to come home. So I don't think the, the decision yeah. would have changed. But they initially weren't prepared to pay him what he wanted and then suddenly mm. found the money when they when they could tell that he was quite serious about moving on. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's a bit of confusion with their list management. They certainly don't want to get to a situation like Collingwood where they're offloading really good players. Um you know, to manage to manage that list better, um, they need to sort that out pretty quickly. I could actually see the Gold Coast going past them very quickly um, in the next couple of seasons. Yeah, I think, and, and not long ago, yeah, they were the ones struggling. Yeah. I think Mel's raised a couple of good points. Like we obviously started with where's Leon Cameron at, but then she's gone on about um, where they're at financially with the salary <laughs> cap and all that sort of stuff. 
the players to let go, the players that brought in all that sort of stuff, they may not be that far off a complete overhaul, really, <coughs> from the top down because they, they got all this talent in and they were primed to play in a grand final or even win one a few years ago, and now they've fallen away and they've got so many holes there. Um, maybe they just need to have a full look at the whole club and maybe just um, start again, really. Not so much with the playing list, but with with the coaches and administrators. I think you're right there. Um, we all know it starts at the top and that's off-field. I agree with that with every club and you can see it with Adelaide. They've made some um, spectacular changes there and I think it's working for them. I I think in, in this case, yeah, you've got to look at, you know, Davis, um, Camilio, those sort of types. They're getting on a bit now. So they can't lead these kids for much longer. So yeah, they are they're in a they're in a precarious position. It'll be it'll be an interesting watch to see if they can recover. Yeah, and I think you you brought up Davis and these sorts of blokes as well. And I think that's another good point. Like at the end of the year, they probably need to have a really good look at where they're at and say, look, are we gonna be in contention four or five years from now? And if not, it's probably time to look at yeah. Davis and these sorts of blokes and say maybe it's time to move on. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Look, I think this week they're playing Canberra, don't they, this week? Yeah, I believe and so. I think um, they've got a really good win-loss ratio there. So I'm not going to rule them out so much for this week. Let's have a look. Let's have a close look at them um, next time we meet up because mm. I think it, it, I think this might be an interesting game for, for the Giants. That's actually another good point because we do this every three weeks. Sort of the narrative can change so much in that time, can't it? Like yeah, we're only two rounds yeah. in. By the time we, we have another chat to you, it might I'm be round five. <laughs> and, um, yeah, the, the landscape could change completely by then. We might be scrutinising the caretaker coach by the time we come back. <laughs> like who knows? <laughs> every chance. Every chance. Okay. All right, so the next point I had was um, any other points of discussion, which I think we've created other points of discussion. So we might just um, roll past that and go into Mount Rushmore, which is AFL forwards, funny enough, with all our discussion being around efficiency of ball use and shooting for goals. So maybe we might let Mal rattle off her four first. Well, gee, thanks, guys, because you literally gave me, like, a an hour to, to um, think about this and obviously all-time best forwards. I mean, wow, it's quite overwhelming to think about um, the amount of men that, that should be in this category. But under short notice, I'll reel through who I've got, one, two, three, four, yep. and then I'll maybe mention why. Number one, no great surprise, Gary Ablett Senior, absolute freak. Kicked 100 from the wing, moving forward. He's an absolute Goliath. Um, could do anything, anywhere, anytime. Watched him live, kick 14. Um, I know we lost the game, but let's forget that little small detail. Um, but the man was an absolute freak. Um, then, space. <laughs> then, uh, one carry. Just absolutely carried his team, I don't know how many times, 
he led the charge, didn't he? He was he his presence. I think just his presence for supporters and players alike. You know, you, you knew when Kerry was around. Um, Buddy Franklin at number three for mine. Uh, I'd love to see him get back into his old form. I think maybe those days are behind him. Although, gee, <laughs> gee, it was good to good to see him back on the weekend. It really was. But just he's that agile, tall forward that just does things that you think you can't do that. You just can't do that. Um, so he's at number three for mine. Now for, for number four, I'm you know I'm going to be a bit of a fencier here. I have got. So many names to mention. My favourite's Jonathan Brown, just because he would crash into a wall, literally. Um, he was just brilliant. Brereton, of course, Nick Rewalt, um, and Pavlich. Absolutely love Pav. Pav, for me, just his loyalty for one, which is a big thing for me. I love loyalty in football. There's not enough of it. Um, his loyalty. But he, look, he carried... He carried Fremantle for so many years, got them into a flag, broke my heart in our first final um, given at Geelong. Um, yeah, he, he, he's just a great of the game. So the fourth, I've got about four in my number of four. <laughs> so sorry about that, fence sitting there. But, yeah, that's, that's, that's my quick, my quick um, all-time best forwards. Okay, we might go over to Woody while I just take a deep breath. Well, I've, I've got a couple of points to make. <laughs> I've got right. a couple of points to make. So first of all... Well, who did I forget, Aaron? Who did I no, forget? Well, I'm, I'm going to pump up your tyres and then I'm going to let you down, all right? <clears throat> so Matthew Pavlich, I'm glad you mentioned him because he is honestly one of the best players you'll ever see play. Um, and I just think being tucked <coughs> away in Fremantle. So he's in your four. Uh, no. No. But, okay. But being tucked <laughs> away in Fremantle, you look at what he did over his whole career, and he's <coughs> just as good backer in the midfield as well. Over his whole career, there was nothing he couldn't do. He was a genuine swingman. He was. Um, no, he's a star. And star. if he played if for he a Victorian club, we would... we would be talking about him in a lot higher yeah. regard than most people normally do because he seems to be forgotten about. He played for any of the big four. Oh, absolutely. Um, exactly. I hate that, the big four, but yes. But, yeah, right. Pavlich is an all-time great, so it's good that someone else actually recognised him, so I'm happy with that. Now, you, you've, you've gone straight past the bloke that's kicked more goals than anyone else now. And has the highest goal efficiency <laughs> rate in the history of the game. I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to do this. Happy moment, boys. Happy moment. No, no it's, it's Aaron's turn, but I just because I have just just to sneak in a bit in <laughs> previous um, podcasts, I actually dissected Ablett and Lockett, and yeah, the unfortunately Gary wasn't even comparable as far as goal kicking. But anyway, m move on. Anyway, the thing is, though, there's, there's forty blokes we could pick here. True, I'm, maybe more. I'm just looking at the ones that Tim's got. And three of the four are the same. So I'm going to go with them. So Tony Lockett is in there. Wayne Carey, Mel's already said. Um, I'm going to say Peter Hudson, just goals per game average. It's just ridiculous. You've got to also, with him, you've got to weigh up how far out he was on a lot of his goal shots and who he played for because Doesn't he had matter. the ball on a silver plate. Can He's, I also add, guys, that this is really a generational question and a generational question. Oh, absolutely yeah. it is. 
Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm a lot younger, <laughs> maybe. So, yeah, but no, Lockett, bad oversight of mine. I'll take that one. <laughs> um, I'm going to go a little bit left field here um, and go for a small forward. Now, as far as small forwards no, go, no, I no, don't think... No, can't do the small forwards because that's a whole other category, Aaron. The... That wasn't in the criteria. It was just no, forwards. Just forwards. So you could put a small <laughs> oh, forward in. Oh, okay. We'll see. No, I saw it as as forwards, and then we've what we what we'll forward. have to do, Mel, moving forward. Next time we have a planning meeting, we'll get you in on the duo call as oh, well. It'd so be nice forward. to be included in the planning meeting. Yeah, yeah. We'll do that moving forward. We weren't sure I've whether got a you whole wanted list to for the small forwards. That's all right. Anyway, so go ahead, Aaron. <laughs> see if you. I'm going to go with Stephen Milne. I know a lot of people probably won't agree with that because they probably think he's a bit of a dickhead, but you can't deny how good he was on the field. Um, and he was a reasonable set shot for a small forward too. Yeah, he. there's not much that – sorry, there's nothing that any other small forward's ever done that he hasn't been able to do really. I think with, with Milne going back to stats, which, <laughs> which we eradicated before, um, with small forwards and goal, actual goal kicking, you, you, you can look at stats because, mm. you know, that's fact. And he, his stats as a small forward are just immeasurable. Um, yeah. mm. He's he streets ahead of, of a couple champions, and I'm talking, you know, Stephen J. Betts, you know, Johnson, yeah. McCraw, Farmer, those types. So, yeah, no, he's definitely but, in the conversation. And the thing he has for a small forward too, Mel, is he was actually a very good set shot in his range, whereas some of the small forwards... Unless they're in full flight, they're not necessarily backable on a set shot. No, I mean, yeah, as I said, he definitely has to be in the conversation of, of the greatest small forwards <laughs> um, yeah. of all time, definitely. I mean, his stats absolutely prove it anyway. So no arguments from me. Mine. So Lockett, Hudson, Milne and Carey. Okay, so mine obviously has, has been disclosed as very similar to Aaron's. <clears throat> to me, the George Washington is Lockett and there's daylight between him and the next. And yes, you might say I'm biased because I'm a St Kilda supporter and he played the bulk of his football there, but his goal efficiency rate was, I think, by memory at about 79 point something last time I looked at it. Um, Dunstall was um, second to him and he was at like a measly 60. Like that's the difference. And the reason why I rate Lockett so highly is he played in a lowly St Kilda team, still kicked 100 multiple times at St Kilda. And my argument when people say Dunstall was better as always, I believe Lockett with better silver service like Dunstall got would have kicked more goals than when he did over his career. But I doubt that Dunstall would have kicked as many as Lockett did if he had played at St Kilda. That's just the way I sort of feel about it. And I also, if Lockett believe, um, if my life depends on him kicking a set shot from 50 to 60 metres out on either foot, I'd take him every day of the week over anyone else I've seen play. And that even includes Gary Ablett because Lockett's probably the best set shot I've ever seen. Um, second, and I'm talking probably from Ballarat to Melbourne, diff distance between them is Jason Dunstall. Um, I mean, I think he was gifted a little bit because I think Breton probably at Senar Ford helped him a lot. 
who was a superstar in my opinion anyway. And also you got Johnny Platten and guys like that delivering the ball to him on a silver platter makes him um, his job a little bit easier, but he still was a good set shot anyway. Wayne Carey, I've got down, and that really, really bugs me because I I don't agree with him being the greatest footballer I've seen, like a lot of people do, but he certainly has to be in the discussion for the best forwards we've seen. And, of course, being the bias and killer supporter I am, so, yes, social media, go hard at me. Stephen Milne, he's the best small forward I've seen. Um, as I said, he's probably the best set shot for a small forward I've seen. And, yeah, no, he's just, as Mal pointed out, his stats stand up and there's not many up there small forwards with him. So just give, me, just give me a second here, boys, because I, I literally, I took it literal, meaning the all-time best forwards as in big forwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm. if we're going to talk small forwards, I'll just quickly spin off my list. I won't take too long. Stevie That's J. Right. Yep. Stevie J. Betts, Milne, Brad Johnson, Cyril, Lacra, Phil Matera, Jeff Farmer, Didak. How'd that go? One or two of them probably started as mids and finished as small forwards, but the rest of them I, I'd, I'd 100% agree with. Tell yeah. you what, the one that I really do like is probably one that I would have forgotten about if we were were doing small forwards was Lacra. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah, was he probably was a, he was a beautiful small forward. Could take a mark as well, like a big strong mark yeah. as well. Definitely. Um, and yeah. speed and could kick it on an angle, could yep. kick it on the run. Could, you know, he, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, these sort of questions are always going to be lengthy because there's always someone that you can add. Yeah. Oh, it's so subjective so, too. It's very and subjective. It's subjective. And like I said, it's generational, you know. You're oh, yeah. You have the younger generation who are going to be talking about forwards of today or forwards of the past 10 years and, and you know, you're going to have the older generation who are, you know, who are talking Hudson's and, you know, so forth. So, yeah, there's there's no comparison, obviously. They're all, they're all champions, but I think every single... I think we've covered nearly every single forward. Um, that deserves to be discussed, to be honest. Yeah, and look, to be honest, Royce Hart was probably a bit stiff too because many people rate him as the best in our <laughs> well, field. Well, before seen. my time, but from what you see and hear, absolutely. 100%. And look, I'd just like to say to everyone out there, you don't have to agree with us. You can just be wrong. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, All right, so <laughs> let, let, let's just open up the barrage, the storm that we're going to get from that comment. Anyway, so we've, we've got to the end of our AFL segment, so it's that time where we may take a break. Other side of the break, we obviously are coming back and Mel's going to leave us. So, Mel, until hey next guys, time. Thanks for listening. No worries, and thanks for joining us, and we'll certainly have Mel back next episode, all being well um, at your end. So thank okay. you for joining us, Mel. No problem. Have a great night. You too. Bye. We're back from our break. Mel's left us. She'll be back next episode. 
So we'll keep the show kicking and move on to the world game where I've posed a couple of questions uh, for uh, Woody and myself to discuss. The first one is, is Melbourne City the real deal this year in the A-League? And on the back of losing 2-1 last night, so we are recording on Good Friday just for the listeners out there, um, from all reports, I believe um, from our colleague Josh Watson, that City squandered opportunity after opportunity, and that was pretty much the difference where Western United utilised every opportunity they had. Uh, taking that game out of it, um, have you been taking much notice of that, Woody, at all, to sort of give us an indication if you believe the Melbourne City that was quite fragile in the past may have hardened up over the off-season? Um, I've been paying a little bit more attention to the A-League than I normally have. Um and I actually caught the first maybe 15 minutes of this game, and yeah, City City definitely started well on top, um, and yeah, got an early lead, um, and then you yeah, gave up two second half goals pretty um, in quick succession. <coughs> mm. um, but I think for the most part, I mean, let's not just get carried away with one result. Um, if we take into account the previous probably seven or eight games that they've played, um, they're probably the form side of the competition, really, weren't they? Well, look, oh, uh, I'll probably cop it on social media because obviously I'm biased being a Melbourne City member and supporter. However, I tend to agree with a couple of the experts, one in particular, Mark Bosnick, who, uh, Bosnick, I think is the proper pronunciation. Um, basically, City's best. I haven't seen anyone on the same um, page, let alone in the same book this season. However, as we know, City can be very, well, how do I say this without um, offending anyone and being, um, not being politically correct, but um, very manic when they're up, but very much deflated when they're down. Um, there's sort of no in-between where I think um, this season, um, Probably over the last two months, they seem to have got that stability. When they're down, they're not dramatically down. Yeah, and like as I said, you just go to say so before before the result last night, they'd won six on the trot. Correct, which is a um, club record too. And just having a look at the score lines as well, in those six games, they scored eighteen and conceded three. Yeah. So um, it's hard to argue against that, and I mean they've they've bumped themselves right up the table now um, on the back of that <coughs> run. Mm. Um, but I think you know. In seasons like this, there's going to be the the odd result here and there that doesn't go their way. But um, look, they won six in a row. They're not going to can't expect them to win seven and no. eight in a row. Um, they're gonna gonna drop points at some stage. Um, but yeah, they're they're looking very good. And I don't. It's not as if they got blown out of the water too. They they were probably <coughs> the better side for the most part of the game and just didn't take their chances. So um, yeah, they're they're in a pretty handy spot. So. Just looking at the table now, they're five points behind um, Central Coast, but Central Coast have played two extra games Correct. as well. So, and um, I think even the team above them in second, which I think is it's that Adelaide, Adelaide, and I think Adelaide have played one more game. Yeah, something? they're a point yeah. ahead and played one more <coughs> game. But yeah, um, you just got to look at the goal difference as well. So City is currently plus twelve, Central Coast are plus eight, and Adelaide are only plus two. So. Um, they're getting it done on both ends more regularly as well with scoring goals and um, defending and defending. And you just got to look at the six nil result against um, 
uh, victory. victory just a couple of weeks ago as well. That really, really stamped their authority and what they're capable of this season, I think. And I think Tom Glover in the goals has actually grown this year too, which has got to help. And the addition of Nuno, um, the Portuguese defender, has probably helped when he's on the pitch. So not bad. And the other thing to remember too for Melbourne City, just before we move on to the next discussion point, is they really do have to have a crack at winning the league because come finals, <clears throat> they're going to possibly be no Glover, no McLaren, no Naboot, no, I think, Williams or... O'Neill, oh, sorry, O'Neill. Um, they're they're going to lose as m- many as you know five to six players out of their starting 11. So they're going to... They're going to find finals difficult with what they've got to choose from. So they've got to try and win the win the league, I think, to get silverware this year. Yeah, that's right. We're still only about <coughs> halfway through the season as well, so yeah. um, there's still time to go for them to actually get on to top. get to get that top spot and really cement themselves as as one of the best, if not the best, team in the league. Yeah, and look for I think for the A League, it'd be good to have someone other than a Victory or a Sydney win it anyway. Um, obviously, being a uh, City member, as I said, um, I would be favouring that. But look, end of the day, I, I love watching Matty Simon play. I'd be happy for him to get another title if City can't get it anyway. I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah, he's uh, <coughs> probably not going to have too many more seasons left in him, I wouldn't have thought. And off the pitch, he's genuinely a lovely fella. And um, what you see on the pitch is not necessarily who he is. And some of the trials and tribulations that him himself and his um, partner have had with, um, I think it was their oldest child being born very premature, that sort of thing. It, look, he cops a lot, and it'd be great to, for him. If City can't win it, I'd like to see Central Coast win it. So that's just my opinion. Uh, moving on, our next two questions on the World Game are probably both Liverpool-centric. Um, the first one I ask of you, uh, Woody, is, was Liverpool's EPL win last year a fluke on the back of what we're seeing happening this year? Um... On the back of what we're seeing this year, I think you'd say yes, you'd have to say that it is, but um, let's not forget that they were that much better than everyone else last year as well. Like They ran away with the title, and I think they sewed it up with about seven games to go um, because they were that much better. Um, we've definitely seen premiership hangovers before, but um, this one's probably the more severe end of the scale, isn't it? Well, they're a chance of um, not finishing top four, which means the obvious no uh, European um, ticket. Well, so. not just Champions League as well. At the moment, they're sitting in seventh. So um, another couple of dropped games, and they could um, very well be not even in the Europa League. So um, there's there's definitely some warning signs there. Um, uh, a lot, lot of teams would look to sack their manager at this point too. Like we saw that with Leicester when they won mm. the championship and struggled. Uh, yeah, and then they struggled the year after they got rid of Ranieri pretty quick. Um, one thing that I have liked speaking of Leicester, um, obviously when they won the title, it was a bit out of the box and no one expected it. But um, they've they had a they struggled a bit the season after, and since then they've been in the mix for the top four. So. Um, I don't know if we can say it's a fluke just yet. Um, let's wait and see what they do next season and see if they they stagnate or maybe if they jump back into that top four like Leicester have. Well, on the Leicester, because the next question is Leicester City versus Liverpool, who's the stronger outfit? 
and I think you've flirted with a response there anyway. Um, can you elaborate a bit further on that question? Uh, well, it's probably just more down to Leicester um, being more, relying more of um, on the team dynamics rather than just a couple of players here and there. Like, we know Liverpool have Mo Salah, who just um, bangs goals in for fun. Um, Firmino generally does his bit as well. Um, but I think at the moment they're relying on too few, whereas Leicester, um, they just they just get the job done, don't they? They go out there, they play a team game, they play a, an attractive brand of football too. I like to like to share the ball around. I don't think they're too sent too focused on just one or two players. Obviously, Jamie Vardy scores a lot of goals, but um, it, it's a very much a team approach with what they're they're doing, especially this year as well, and they're in a in a pretty handy position now and probably should make the Champions League from here. Well, I actually don't think Vardy gets the kudos he deserves as a striker because I think, being English, most of the focus goes towards Harry Kane. And I'm not yep. saying I'm not having a pot at um, Harry Kane by any means, but Vardy's been probably, you could argue, more consistent. Maybe he hasn't had as big a highlight, you know, as in peak for a season or anything like that. But I, I'm pretty sure if you looked on their you know, last three or four seasons, Vardy's probably possibly more consistent. And I know Kane's had some injury issues as well. Um, I think the thing with Vardy, if you look back to the year that Leicester actually <coughs> won the title, um, it was pretty much a game where they just played the ball out from the back, skipped <coughs> in midfield, and Vardy had run onto it. Mm. And I think a lot of people still have that image of Vardy just running onto long balls. Um but he's definitely refined <coughs> his game since then and become more of an all-round and complete player. So, um, yeah, I think just mostly from that, that season where they won the title, people seem to have that image in their head and, and judge him on that. Yeah, no, no, it's fair. And look, end of the day, probably your two prime strikers that are English in the EPL are probably Vardy and um, Kane anyway, so... Yeah, and there's uh, Patrick Bamford from Leeds that's now yeah. making a name for himself as well. <clears throat> and and look, um, back on what you said about Leicester City being you know, quite a strong... T- two teams um, that sort of always impress me because I always find that um, my mob, which is Manchester United, tend to struggle against both Leicester City yep. and the Wolves. And I think it's because both teams are very disciplined and set up very well. I think that's probably the big thing that keeps them thereabouts. Yep. Wolves have always been a middle-of-the-run sort of club, but um, they are very hard to score against. Um, it's very rare you'll see them lose 6-0 or something like yep. that. You know? they, they seem to have their favourite teams to play as well. There's a few teams in and around that top six where they just seem to have their measure as well. Yeah, the flashier the team, the better Wolves go. Yeah, the, the, the thing I like, they're a bit inconsistent, but the thing I like around, they don't get overawed by their opponent. No, no, certainly don't. Well, I think we've covered the world game quite a bit um, there, and um, our allotted minutes has been smashed out of the ballpark <laughs> anyway, but I think it was quite a healthy discussion. We don't always give the world game as much focus as what we have today, so that's probably not a bad thing. Um, we're moving on to the NBA, and basically the only thing we really want to discuss is... The trades, um, who filled their vacancies, and I've got on the notes Aaron Gordon and Nikola Vucevic Vucevic, um, trades. 
And that was actually a question posed by Morgan at Worminator91 as his um, tag. His Twitter it? handle, yeah. Handle, sorry, Twitter handle. So um, did you want to sort of talk around that, Aaron? Um, yeah, so so what Morgan's asked is how, how do I see, because I, I converse with him a bit on Twitter and he's obviously aware that I'm a big Magic fan. So mm-hmm. we obviously lost Gordon and Vucevic in the pr- trade period, but um, I think Gordon's ended up at... Um, at the, the Nuggets, um, and I think it's actually a good get for them because he, he'll pair up with um, Nikola Jokic there, um, and Nikola Jokic is probably close to, if not leading the um, MVP race at the moment. He's having a very, very good is year. Is he aided by an injured LeBron James? Because he was on fire I too. think everyone's aided by that really, aren't they? Even yeah. um, Damian Lillard um, <clears throat> probably strengthens his case for MVP with um, LeBron out as well. But the thing with Gordon, so Jokic is a very unathletic type player. Um, but, you know, he's, he's the passing centre and he puts <clears throat> up a lot of points as well. Whereas Gordon's more eccentric and he uses his flair and his um, athletic ability, um, a bit more inconsistent. But I think if they if they get the time to gel, I think they can really complement each other because mm. um, Gordon will be able to do the things athletically that Jokic can't, mm. whereas Gordon's not going to get in Jokic's mm. way either because there's certain p- parts of <coughs> Jokic's game which Gordon doesn't really excel at anyway. But I, I just I think gonna... they're, they're complete opposites, but yeah. I think... If they can get it right, they have a big chance to really complement each other's game. I was going to say, um, watching most of the playoffs due to COVID last year with being a Lakers fan, that um, Jokic, I agree with you, but I believe he brought, brought the best out of AD because AD had to come and play because Jokic had the capabilities yep. of tipping his team over the top of the Lakers if AD didn't come to play. Yeah, he did, but yeah, then... <laughs> We know how much the the Nuggets struggled um, at times in the in the playoffs as well, and um, and y- think... and Jokic is very susceptible to the physical game, as in we've seen him pretty much get fouled out uh, yeah. or in foul trouble against a centre that's actually willing to be defensive. Well, that's the thing too. But a lot of the centres these days, <coughs> have, they've got a lot more athleticism than centres in years gone by, and I think. If you look at most teams, they've got that really athletic centre, whereas Denver don't in Jokic, um, which is where I think some centres actually struggle to play against him. Where um, that's where Howard was very handy against yeah. him because um, well Howard's lost a lot of his athleticism, um, but but he's a big unit. But he's still a big unit, and he's been able to um, yeah really really go toe to toe. And he's not complete, and he's not rim. completely useless defensively neither. No, that's right. Um, he still played his role. Um, and as far as Nikola Vucevic goes, um, that was weird to me, him ending up at um, Chicago. Um, I'm not sure that that's going to be a really good fit for him, um, especially when you look at the needs of the Boston Celtics. Um, they they need a centre, a big centre who can dominate a game, and I just thought he would have been the perfect fit for there. And I think they missed a trick there because he was clearly available um, and they didn't go get him. It may have cost them someone like Marcus Smart or or um, a few bench players as well, but they could have really used someone like Jokic to, to play around Tatum and um, <clears throat> Kemba Walker mm-hmm. and Jalen Brown and these sorts of guys. So I think I think the Celtics probably missed out there. 
Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see how he does go at the balls. But I just thought he probably would have been more inclined to go to a, a top tier team rather than someone that's just going to be trying to make the playoffs. Mm. Just on um, player movements, um, Drummond to the Lakers. I know I asked you away from the podcast what your thoughts are. Does he, once we have AD back and LeBron on the... Does he sort of make sway it the Lakers way against, say, the um, Clippers, those sort of... The Nets, those sort of teams? Or does it um, make no difference uh, it makes a massive difference. It's not just because of, let's forget, you know, how they match up against other teams and whatever. Just, you've got Andre Drummond, and I was, he's still only 27 years old, and it feels like he's been around forever. Um, he, he's quite capable of putting up 25 points a night and getting 14, 15 rebounds. So, Especially for LeBron feeding him the ball, too. That's right. So, he, with, with LeBron feeding him the ball as well, he might be able to, um, you know, get three, four more points extra a night that he otherwise wouldn't. Um, and plus, he actually reduces AD's workload probably more on the defensive end as well. <coughs> so um, AD won't have to be as much of a rim protector, whereas Drummond can go and do that, um, and it, just, it could potentially just make them even more dynamic on offense. So it, it depends how they gel when they come back, but I think there's enough time left in the season for when AD and LeBron both return that, um, yeah, it really puts... The Lakers back in contention, I think. Can he make a difference why they're not in the team as well? With Is he going to make a difference without those two guys um, at the moment while they're in? Possibly injured? not, but I think <clears> if he can just be there and learn the system and, you know, he's still obviously going to be working with them every day, you know, away from, from the court. Um, so, yeah, I think once he learns the, the team game, the way that they they want to play and, um, and his role, I think it could be... Um, very beneficial for the Lakers come come the playoffs. And he may benefit because he's going to be playing under a, a very astute coach too. Yeah, I think yeah, it's definitely definitely a good move for the Lakers. Um, but obviously it's dependent on the fitness of um, Anthony Davis and LeBron. And um, yeah, that's, that's up in the air at the moment. So um, we'll reserve judgment till we actually see them all play together. Yeah. True. All right, so we better move on from the um, Lakers segment and go into the NFL where um, our point of discussion is the Eagles, 49ers and Dolphins all trading picks. Um, so was it wise or not? Well, let, let's just forget about the second round picks that are, and future picks that were involved. <laughs> but so at, at, um, the Dolphins originally had pick three. Um the Eagles had pick six and the Niners had pick 12. Now, with a couple of trades, the the Niners have moved up to three, the Dolphins go to six, and the Eagles go to 12. And I think most interestingly, mm-hmm. I think this will really set the standard for draft night, which is towards the end of this month. Um, it says to me that there's probably going to be a couple more moves for um, quarterbacks, and they'll... We could have four or five quarterbacks going in the top five picks. Um, so it says to me that... Is that unusual? Um, yeah, it is, especially... Uh, yeah, it can be unusual, but I think the this year it makes sense because next year is not touted to be a strong draft for quarterbacks. Yep. So the teams that need one either this year or next year are probably better off getting one this year. So better off to roll can. the dice this year. I think it is, yeah, because you look at... Trevor Lawrence is going to go number one... 
We don't mm-hmm. know what the Jets are doing, but they'll probably take Zach Wilson from BYU at number two. Um, and yeah, the the Niners moving up to three to me says that um, they're preparing for life without Jimmy Garoppolo. Um, that does not mean that Jimmy won't be there this year. I think if that's the path they're going to go down, they may be eyeing off um, Trey Lance from North Dakota State, who's seen more of a prospect, but I think he's probably got more upside of any quarterback in this year's draft. Um, And it wouldn't surprise me if the Niners picked him and sat him for a year. um, So Jimmy Garoppolo is still the quarterback for them this season, and then Trey Lance will take over from there. And for me, that receiver could um, very well be Jamar Chase. Um, he's probably the number one wide receiver from this crop, I think. Um, he had a, a very good year for uh, a good couple of years at LSU. Um, so I think he's he's probably primed to be taken by there. So they're going to stick with Tua Tagovailoa lower at quarterback. So I think just going, going and getting him a, a weapon... Um, is probably the way to go. So I think Chase actually sat out this year with the COVID stuff, but um, yeah, he'll still go very high in the draft. If Kyle Pitts is there, I imagine they'd probably take him, but I don't see that happening. Um, and yeah, the Eagles shuffle down to pick 12, so it's going to be interesting to see what they do there, whether they go offense or defense. Um, for me, if they were going to go offense, I'd like them to um, probably look at Devonta Smith. He was the Heisman Trophy winner. Um he could potentially be there at pick 12. And if not, if they're looking at defense, um, there's a guy out of Penn State. Um, he's a linebacker, Micah Parsons. I really like to look at him. And with a lot of lot of teams maybe moving up and shuffling picks to get the quarterbacks, it means there could be some really good defensive players and receivers um, at pick 10 to 15 that otherwise wouldn't be there. Cool. So... Um... Looks like exciting times coming into the draft. Yeah, it's only three weeks away now, but um, yeah, I think teams are jostling for position now, and um, I'm very much looking forward to see what's going to happen. All right, so probably by the time we record next time, we're looking at it's nearly time for the draft, so probably the episode after the next one, so we will probably have a bit more to talk about around the draft. Yeah, ho- hopefully we'll be able to um, be talking about the Eagles moving up, <coughs> maybe not having another poor year like they did this season for my case, and um, <coughs> may- maybe your Cowboys can do something as well. Yeah, I think I need to throw the bank at um, a few uh, players and sort of actually get some protection oh. for quarterbacks. Yeah, protection and shore up that secondary, I think, <coughs> um, is what, what they really need to do. So they'll probably look to, to take a cornerback um, or I would imagine with one of their first picks as well. Yeah, no worries. All right, so we'll move on to our next um, sort of sport of discussion, which is combat sports. And in particular this week, we are talking UFC on all three discussion points. First one, um, anyone that's a UFC fan would have seen on social media and whatnot that Cupcake, Misha Take, Tate, sorry, bit of a tied tongue there, is returning and it's been signed, sealed, delivered. My question for Woody is, is she dreaming about making the comeback or does she have something to give? Has the fight game for the women gone past her from three or four years ago when she left or does she still have the tools in the toolbox to be competitive? Um, I think 
she'll be competitive enough, I think. I don't think the game's gone that much past her at the moment. Um, she was still capable on her feet and pretty handy on the ground um, when she was fighting. But the the problem she'll have is ring rust is a real thing. So she'll have been out for about four years. Um, the girl they've got her match up with has a 9-7 and seven record currently. I can't pronounce her name, so I'm not yeah. even going to try. That'd be um, a, you don't want to get stuck into a Tim tongue-tied No, situation. not at all. No. I'll leave the mispronunciations <laughs> to you. Yep, no worries. Um, but, yeah, I think they're probably spoon-feeding her a win here. <clears throat> Um, and then they'll look to see how she she looks mm. and then maybe maybe start to give her some more quality opponents. I think, um, too, it's probably not a silly move by the UFC because she does have a following. She is very marketable um, and probably got underutilized when, when, when we had the Ronda Rousey show. Yep. I, I still believe she probably could have been pushed a bit more. Yeah. Um, and also, too, I think the only th- reason why she's probably lost against Ronda when she has fought her is she hasn't gone in for a decent game plan. I think she's just thought, you know, back her skills on the ground, which is obviously Ronda's lopsided um, strength, where I find I think Misha's more rounded than a Ronda. And as you said, she can stand and bang to a degree. And she's, put it this way, if she got a shot against a Nunes again, Nunes would be probably wanting to bang and not necessarily take a chances with Misha on the ground because yep. Misha might actually... That's probably a fight where Misha's strength would be to get it on the ground. Yep. But, yeah, I, I don't think... And it's a case with pretty much any girl currently fighting. I don't think anyone's really on Nunes's level. Um, so, given that, I don't know what her motivation is, really, because I don't really see her being... <coughs> Being a contender for the title, she might be a contender for a top three or four fighter, but um, yeah, that's best case scenario. But as I said, she's been out of the, the game for about four years now, and she's um, got two kids as well now. So She might just looked at it as extended maternity leave, and she's coming back, or parental leave, and she's coming back now to work, I guess. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what sort of motivation and what sort of um, drive she's got, really, um, given that before, you know... When she was fighting, there's obviously the the rivalry with Ronda really drove her as well. Um, but now it, everything's obviously going to come secondary to having a family. Um, at 34 years old as well, she might have just seen it as it, it's now or never really <coughs> to make a comeback. I think too, just on um, Misha, I follow her on um, Instagram on social media and she seems to be forever posting working out and that so I, I don't think it's like she's just sat on a on a laurels having children i think she still um remained at a reasonable level of fitness anyway so she may not find it as difficult as some other situations and in recent times mckinsey dern's gone away had a baby and come back pretty quick she might have come back one, you know, a couple of months too soon when she yep. lost that fight, but she hasn't looked back since. No, she she definitely <coughs> come back a lot quicker. But the, the thing with Tate is, yes, she might be keeping in good shape. She still might be training, mm. but there's a difference between between going mm. to the gym every day and sparring and working on your technique and actually fighting. Yeah. And when you when you're four <coughs> four and a half years away removed from that between fights, um, especially at how quickly the games evolved. Um, yeah, it may, it may make her look a little bit silly, I think. And There's look, that chance as well. Yeah. But as I said, they're probably spoon-feeding her a win first up, but that could also backfire as well. We mm. just don't know. 
And let's be honest, there's probably only one fighter we know of in the UFC that could go away, come back after a reasonable amount of time out and still be... Step up a division and go grab that belt as well. Correct. and But then we're probably talking about the GOAT of MMA. Yeah, so. that's right. He's a, George St. Pierre is a different different beast. He's probably the, the exception more so than the rule, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. And I think being able to do that has highlighted why he is the GOAT and Anderson Silva probably isn't. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, anyway. All right, so the other one of the other discussion points we have is... Whitaker seems to be jumping through hoops of fire to try and get a rematch. Now, I would have thought two solid decision wins would have been enough to say, all right, you've got um, Izzy next in the rematch. Yet he's now been thrown another uh, curveball, which um, could be quite a dangerous one. And, and is Dana actually hoping that he doesn't win it so he doesn't have the um, problem of having to give him the um, rematch? Yeah, I think there's a bit of that. Um, I honestly don't know what Whitt- more Whitaker's got to do. <coughs> so si- since he lost the... You obviously can't give him a rematch straight up after getting knocked out um, like he did, but he's since gone away and he's had a win over Darren Till. He's had a win over Jared Cannonier, who was promised a title fight if he beat Whitaker. Well, the funny thing is now, it's funny you say that, Till is the one that is his beans dropping's name yes. and um, Rob beating. So I've, I've got a feeling that um, Adesanya and Dana probably both don't want Whitaker as a rematch because he's probably the best-placed fighter to, to beat Adesanya at middleweight. Um, and it just it, we know what Dana's like. He plays his favourites and, and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, you look at, um, at other divisions. So, you know... Conor McGregor got knocked out against <coughs> Dustin Poirier and then they were talking about giving him an immediate rematch against Poirier, which would be for the title after Khabib retired. So it's just a bit weird that you would give someone a title shot after being knocked out straight away and then <coughs> Whitaker has got to go jump through all these hoops and now he's got another matchup. It was slated to be against Brian Ortega. Ortega's pulled out, so now it's Calvin Gastelum. Um... So it's not as if Whitaker's going away and fighting <coughs> slouches either. He's fighting guys that are also in line for the title, and he's beating them. Mm. Um, and then you go, you look at the welterweight division as well, which this just shows how contradictory Dana is and the favourites that he plays mm. all the time. So um, George Masvidal, he he lost to um, Usman last year, and admittedly he took that fight on short notice, <coughs> um, but he still lost. And then Usman's gone away. He's defended the title again. And Masvidal sent idle for the whole time. And he's getting the next title shot. Mm. Just completely baffling how someone can try and keep their credibility and just play favourites like this. And we all know why Dana White does it. It's for his ego um, more so than anything else. And just, I understand it's a business and you've got to make money. But at some point, you've still got to be fair to fighters as well, don't you? Well, I would have thought so. And... If you look back, um, when GSP lost the title um, when in one of his two losses, I reckon he only had one other fight before he got a rematch anyway. Um, so, which one was that? Was that against... It was the first fight he lost, I believe. When he, the, oh, when he lost to Matt Serra. <clears throat> yeah, I reckon yeah, he had... So he actually got an immediate rematch, so I'm pretty sure. I don't think he went away and got another one, um, but at the same time, he'd, he'd held the belt for a long time at that point. Or was it the Hughes loss that I'm thinking of? 
Yeah, it might be the Hughes one. I'm not. Because did sure Hughes get the title it. off him? Um, no, I don't believe that he did. But um, yeah, you just look back. So he he's avenged every loss he's ever had. Anyway, I think he has. You know, um, and he's well and truly um, regained his credibility both times. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure. So yeah, so. It was an immediate rematch that um, GSP had against against Sarah. Did Stupe have a um, immediate rematch against DC when he lost the title? Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. So that just proves inconsistencies. Yeah, and look, I, I've got no <coughs> qualms with a bloke that's held the title um, getting an immediate rematch. That's fine. Like you got to give the the title holder some credits in the bank, but I think. And that, that's the thing that, you know, um, annoys us both most mm. about Dana is it's his inconsistency and he's, um, he, he plays favourites all the time and it's just it's just not fair to, to the other fighters. And it's, it's the nice guys that miss out. So Masvidal, he gets <coughs> the rematch. He loves Conor McGregor. He loves Itasanya. He loves these blokes that have these big personalities and generally fake personalities mm. as well. And then you've got guys like Whitaker that just, just fight because they love fighting, and they don't. They don't pretend to be someone they're not. They get looked looked over a lot of the time. And another guy that will cop the Whitaker um, treatment if he drops his title ever will be Alexander too, because he's a nice guy. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you can just look at um, at what they're doing with him. I think they're they're trying to set um, Max Holloway up to to have another crack at that belt. And look, even in the split decision fight, clearly, in my opinion, uh, Alexander was ripped by the um, judge that didn't give the fight to him. So it shouldn't have been a split decision, in my opinion. Oh, look, I, I've watched that fight a few times, and I, if I was scoring it, I probably would have scored it to Holloway. But at the same time, it's a very close fight, and you can understand why judges in a close round will side with the champion. Mm. Um, it's sort of like to be the champ, you've got to beat the champ mm. scenario. And there's a lot of people that carry on out there and say, oh, Max Holloway's the real champ, all that sort of stuff. That's just crap to me because they fought twice. And even if Holloway did win the second fight, he still lost seven rounds to three <coughs> over the two fights because yeah. Volkanovski destroyed him in that first one. Well, the other thing about it is, though, too, and this is where I don't stand on the um, you don't get an immediate rematch um because you've been knocked out as the champion. But to me, it takes more skill to dominate the fight over five rounds than what it may be with one lucky kick, knee, yep. elbow, to finish the fight. Yep. That's just my opinion. Yeah, look, that, that's a valid opinion too. Obviously, yeah, any, anyone can get lucky with a punch or, or whatever else. But I think, yeah, if, if you're giving some credits to the champion and give him a rematch because he was the champion, I don't think that's the wrong move. Well, maybe a few of these um, UFC champions need to, when they're putting the title on the line, when they sign the contract, make sure that there's a clause they get the first go if they lose. Oh, it depends how the fight pans out as well. Like, if... The, the Volkanovski and Holloway one, like, I think a couple of judges might have scored that 44-50 or 43-50 to Volkanovski. If he gets destroyed like that, you can make a case for not giving him a rematch. Yeah, but I'm just saying as a champion, I'd be if I was a UFC champion, and knowing the way Dana goes, I'd be 
I'd have my lawyers saying, no, we want a clause. If we don't win, we get the immediate rematch. But if, if that's <clears> not what Dana wants, we know what he's going to say. He's going to come out, oh, we offered him this, this fight to defend his belt against this guy. He's refused to take it, so we're stripping him of the title. That's just the way Dana works. And then I go away and write my biography and um, let them know what Dana's really like. Yeah, we, you know. we know exactly what Dana's like. He's in it for himself, so I think the sooner he moves <clears> on, the better. Which is funny. Our next little statement was, when is it time for Dana to walk away? And I think, just cutting it briefly, because we've obviously attacked Dana in um, that part of our discussion, I'd say yesterday. Yeah, about four years ago, probably, when they when they got bought, when Zufa got bought out, um, I would have thought that would have been the perfect time for him to walk away. And that, all that being said, though, MMA and UFC wouldn't be where it is today without Dana White, but he's taken it as far as he can go, and if it wants to go to another level, he needs to step away because all it is now is him making it about himself. Funny you say that because we're moving on to sports entertainment, and one of the topics we'll be discussing will be um, something that's happened with a show for the WWE versus a show from AEW. And it may be a similar scenario to Dana should have walked away. It might be very similar to someone else. But first of all, you had the pleasure of seeing the highlights of the Britt Baker versus Thunder Rosa. We would say they called it a lights-out match, meaning there there was no rules, there was no zero or one against your record, that sort of thing. It was just free for all. What were your thoughts for a women's fight? Um, look, that's that's a bit of a throwback to the old uh, Mankind and Mick Foley days, isn't it? Where they've got the ladders, they've got the tables, they've got the tacks and everything. Um, I think, yeah, it's, um, I'll let you talk about it a bit more, but I just thought it was a throwback. And if that's, if that's what it takes to get um, women's wrestling on the map, I think um, they've done a fine job. Yeah. I think, um, look, most of the criticism that's been directed at AEW has been around the women's division of being weak and whatnot like that compared to WWE. But um, I really think um, AEW is sitting on an awesome talent in Britt Baker because she is just a heel you just love to see get beat. And she plays it well. She's actually quite an astute woman in real life because she is actually really a dentist in real life away from the wrestling and she juggles both. But the bumps she took in that fight, there's a clip after the fight when she walks out the back, and it was a standing ovation from her peers. It was just amazing. And I've never seen a women's um, fight as entertaining and as probably hardcore as what it was. I actually think it did a wealth of um, good for the women's division, and it just highlighted the talent of Britt Baker and Thunder Rosa, very talented um, woman herself. But um, <clears throat> to me, the star of that fight was Brit with all the bumps she took. It was just amazing. But that leads us down to um, NXT are now going to move to Tuesday nights from Wednesday nights, which is a big move because usually Vince just tries to destroy the opposition on the same night, but he's actually the one that's ran for the high ground. So... I don't know, is that shown in the times that maybe um, the current climate of the wrestling that fans are actually preferring to see the um, older stars that actually have some personality, some grunt, some charisma versus these, um, well, it's probably disrespectful, but to say puppets being um, worked by the puppet master Vince McMahon because they can't fart without him giving permission. Um, and the big the big lure of AEW is the creativity um, that they allow the individual wrestlers. 
to me, look, I'm biased. I'm a regular subscriber to AEW and watch it um, religiously every week, um, Dynamite in particular. But in recent times, they've gained Christian, who's fighting under Christian Cage, which was his original indie name. Paul White, also known as The Big Show's come over. Um, I believe there could be a few more. Um, Rustoff is now over as, um, oh, his name... Miro, he, he fights under the name of Miro. So there's a few that have crossed over, and yeah, there must be a reason why they're retreating. Could could it be? Could we be seeing the start of something like when um, back in the the nineties when WCW sort of really took on WWE and <coughs> and beat them in the ratings? Do you think? So AEW's beaten NXT in the ratings quite regularly. Yeah, now. and they have on a one or two occasions actually beat Raw on the ratings. That's as what well. I was going to say. Do yeah. you see? Do you see it shifting, especially when they allow crowds and all that sort of mm. thing to come back? Do you think that maybe they can go head to head with Raw and maybe outdo them consistently? For me, um, I think the difference at the moment, and this is where the crowds will be an interesting factor. I believe AEW are doing it better without crowds than what um, WWE are. WWE basically set up the arena with thousands of bloody monitors of people from home watching it, where the AEW model is a fight club, as I've mentioned on previous episodes, where the the fighters or the wrestlers that aren't competing stand around the middle um, fencing and sort of create that sort of atmosphere. And in some um, venues, they've been able to have some crowds. And there's talk... um, that there may be in the coming months, uh, they're going to put move from Jacksonville for a few episodes, and they'll be able to have crowds. But that must be due to which state they're in. So it'd be interesting once the crowds come back to see if it makes any difference. But for me, um, this could be different to the '90s, is what you said, because the Khans have probably more money than Vince. Where in the past, Vince has had the power of the money versus the opposition haven't had the money that he's got. So he's actually probably going to have a war that the opposition can actually match him with, if not surpass him with. So it'd be interesting to see how it plays out. Moving forward, we're back to winging it, which is our predictions. Um, now, previous episode, what were the predictions? Um, well, while I bring those up, what I'll do is I'll, I'll actually give my prediction for, for this week. <coughs> mm-hmm. um, and I mentioned it briefly before in our um, NFL talk. Um, I actually think that the um, 49ers, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. will take Trey Lance at pick three. <coughs> so that, that's where I'm going with that one. Okay. Well, while you're looking, my prediction is probably related to our first segment in which we were joined by Mal. And I actually am going to go... It's not really a limb. I'm saying Leon Cameron is sacked by round 10, inside round 10. Yeah, no, he could could very well be... <laughs> yeah, so... Be under the pump. And, yeah, on, on our last episode, um, you actually went with another sacking as well. So you said Alistair Clarkson will be without a job by the end of the year. Yep. Um, and who knows, that, that could happen. Depends how the Hawks go the next... Probably 10 or 12 weeks as well, but I mean, it'd be very, very brave of um, Jeff Kennett to pull the pin on him given <clears throat> how some, well, most Hawks fans really are still pretending that the three peat was only a couple of years ago. 
Yeah, but Jeff doesn't. That's the thing, and it is a bit of a dictatorship at Hawthorne, I believe, under Jeff. Yeah, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, that remains to be seen. You got you got to give the man, um, and I'm not a Jeff Kennett fan, but you got to give the man the thumbs up and a pat on the back for his passion, though, for the club. Like he, he's probably is he too passionate? Maybe that could be a problem too. Well, I'd argue Eddie Maguire was too passionate when he was in charge of Collingwood. I think for Jeff, he's probably maybe more passionate, but because he's not in the media like Eddie, it's not as obvious. Yeah. Well, that's the thing with Eddie. He just had too many... uh, His hand in too many pockets, didn't he, really? So it was probably time for him to move on and not a bad thing, but obviously the circumstances were a little bit um, untoward. 100%. How'd you go? Did you find those predictions? Yeah, so I, I, um, I said Carlton would beat Richmond. Um, I reckon I got that one wrong um, and yeah you had Clarkson to be sacked so um, yeah that, that could still very much come to fruition I still think he's, um, with Jeff his record won't stand any um, ground when it comes to if they they poorly perform this season I just don't think that cuts it for Jeff um, look it, it probably won't and um, we know that Jeff Kennett's got a big ego as well, so um, if it comes to a battle of egos, Clarkson's not going to win, is he? No, no, that's right, and um, that's pretty much it. So our, our next segment is the lovely um, one that we love so much because we waste our money, because <laughs> we do legitimately put some of our uh, funds towards uh, our multi, and it is... Our it's only money, and it's our multi where we all pick a leg. Um, this episode, Woody's got a leg, Phil's got a leg, and I've got a leg. Now, Woody, Phil was unable to join us, which he normally calls in for the leg, which is really good, but um, he sent through to me. Now, I'm not 100% certain of the date for this game, but I'm presuming it will be at the end of the week, or and so we're looking at probably around about the 9th, 10th, 11th of um, April. Um, Woody's getting onto his phone to see what date the game is as we speak. But I'll uh, go ahead and let everyone know that he's picked out of the Real Madrid versus Liverpool game, which will be in the Champions League for those that are looking on um, your preferred betting sites. And he's gone Liverpool and a draw. So basically Liverpool will either win or there's a draw. And it's paying $1.45, which is not too bad. Yep, so that's on Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock that game. What date's that? That's the 7th. All right, so he's gone for midweek. I was a bit wrong. I thought it was later in the week. Um, Then, for myself, I've gone for... um, I've gone down the AFL um, bandwagon. And I'm looking at round four, which is next weekend. And I believe this game may have... It's on the 11th, so that would make it the Sunday, I think. Yeah, it would be the Sunday. And I'm looking at taking Melbourne to win against Geelong between 1 and 39 points for $2.80. I, is that at the MCG? And it's at the MCG. There you go. I Even though um, Geelong started favourites, it's got me bewildered why Geelong are favourites. I don't think they've been impressive enough to be shorter favourites as they are in that game anyway. Um, I think, yeah, <coughs> the odds for Melbourne will probably shorten... Um, after this weekend, especially if they do a number on uh, GWS. 
which makes us think the moment we hit stop on the recording, I will put the multi on. Yeah, I, I only <clears> imagine <throat> that they're going to get a lot shorter. Um, and it could happen again. Like if the Hawks put up a good show against Geelong on Monday as well, <clears> um, we could could potentially see Melbourne become a come favourite, which yep. would be a huge swing. And who you got? Um, I'm going to the Premier League next weekend. I've got Wolves to beat Fulham. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a... Fulham home game, but um, yeah, I got Wolves to beat them at um, three dollars. Yep. So that that at the moment that's paying a total of um, twelve dollars eighteen. No worries. So there you go. And I'll, I'll point out to we don't necessarily condone betting because we know that it can get out of control. So people, if you do have an issue, um, make sure. You contact someone like Gambler's Help for help, but um, we only sort of do it once every three weeks and um, have a little bit of fun. If you do that, it's healthy, but if you get obsessed with it, you can get yourself into trouble, so just remember Gambler's Help. Now, um, we're at that end of the um, episode time. Um, I'd just like to give Josh Watson a bit of a plug. He does all the editing, and he'll have a little bit of um, fine-tuning when he um, gets these uh, files for this episode. And he utilises the music of Zaggy too. Um, so, Woody, I'd like to say hooroo to you. Yeah, and we'll uh, catch up again in three weeks and do it all again. No worries. And um, let us know on social media, on uh, Twitter. At NPO Podcast, or search for NPO Sports Podcast on Facebook. And hit us up, and we are on Instagram under NPO as well. But look, end of the day... It is what it is. Go to your preferred one. Catch ya until um, our next episode. Hooroo.